Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 225 for December 3rd, 2009. Same origin troubles. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting, the affordable way to meet with clients and colleagues. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. And by the new voice-activated sync, featuring hands-free calling, music search, and turn-by-turn navigation. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details and to enter to win a free Nano or Zune, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you as you surf the world on the World Wide Web. Mr. Steve Gibson is here. He is the uh, man behind the Gibson Research Corporation, creator of Spinrite. You know, I was looking at your... Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo, it's great to be with you again. You know, we don't have a jingle, and I guess that's a good thing. Because <laughs> yeah, no, you that would sort jingle. of be distracting, like you do with Dick D. Bartello, to be like talking over jingles that were going in the background. You've so. got viruses, and Steve's got the cure. He's the man. <laughs> no, that doesn't fit. It doesn't. I was looking no. at your Wikipedia entry, and the funniest, I mean, it's so funny to watch the discussion behind the scenes, because mm. there, there are people... I think it's one guy, but there's somebody who doesn't like you. Yeah. And somebody questioned calling you an engineer. And I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to like get on there and say, what do you mean, is he an engineer? The guy, for crying out loud, he built the light pen for an Apple II. He's, yep. he, I mean, but blew Wozniak away. I remember that, that, that Steve Wozniak was at the, at the Apple Fest, in the Boston Apple Fest. And he stood there. I loved the, the pronoun he used. He looked up and I was, as I was demonstrating the light pen and he said, you always blow me away with what you're able to get my machine to do. Oh, isn't that nice? Uh, he, was, he was possessive about it. I yeah. thought, that's really neat. Well, that's also from Was very high praise. Yeah, and the, 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 really, the, the real trick of engineering was that whereas all light pens of that era were big cigar tube size things. I remember, yeah. Mine was a size of a regular little pen, and I had figured out how to mount the amplifier at the other end, back in the Apple. And I used something called a transconductance amplifier because the photodiode, you had to use a photodiode, not a phototransistor, because of the response time. A transistor's amplification makes it way too, a phototransistor, way too slow to respond to the beam moving past in front of the screen. The photodiode can do that, but the problem is then you have to count electrons, literally almost like a photomultiplier. Wow. And to do that at the end of a, of a four-foot cord and to put the amplifier in the apple, which is a noisy environment. Anyway, it was a, well, I guess it was a feat of engineering. So, yeah, yeah. I think I qualify as an engineer. So Probably and, some people listening have no idea what a light pen is. <laughs> In, in the days before styluses and touch screens, you 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 use light pens, right? Yeah. Well, it was. It, well, actually, I would say the day before the mouse, because you, you predated the mouse too. You're right. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, yes. Exactly. The the idea was 
Um, I think it dated from maybe like NORAD or, you know, high-end display systems. And you'd, you know, because I remember like in early in early movies that were showing like military complexes, there'd be people in uniform like touching the screen with a pen. And the idea was, and, and those were old XY displays where the beam jumped around all over the screen like painting air traffic control diagrams and things. And so you could, if you if you touched the pen to where the, where something was on the screen, the system would notice where the beam was when the pen said, oh, I just saw the beam go by, and that was a way of, of feeding back coordinates into the computer. So, yeah, and I mean, it was it was my first real uh, independent corporate success was the light pen for the Apple II. And actually, there were some tremendous articles that were, that were you know, very flattering about how well it worked. Really and in fact, clever, Atari yeah. bought it from me because they oh. wanted it for their Atari. I didn't computer. know that was yours. I remember yeah. the Atari Light Pen. Oh. I wrote all the software for it. I'll too. be danged. Yeah, yeah. Well, and part of the discussion was interesting, which is, well, what constitutes an engineer? How do you, you know, do you have to have a degree in engineering to be an engineer? I mean, you don't, I mean, that doesn't make sense. An engineer yeah. is somebody who designs and builds stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I think of myself. I mean, sort of both scientist and technologist. I think of a technologist as an applied scientist. You know, I like. You know, creating things. Right. Whether, well, that's what engineering yeah. is. It's applied science. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. you know, I, I we often talk about that on the network because I, and, and it's one of the reasons we're doing more science stuff with Ray and with Kiki because I, I think um, people forget the, 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 the tr- strong bind between science and technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I, it was probably the Windows XP raw sockets thing that upset. That's what, so that's when you made enemies. That's when I made enemies. And I you mean, were right. That's... I was I was right, but that doesn't really count. <laughs> I mean, that's the funny thing. Even Microsoft acknowledged, finally, yeah, it was a problem and took it out. And fixed it, yeah. Uh, but, you know, damage done. But ah, it's, yeah. it's still, and... it's funny. I mean, when you see somebody saying, well, Steve's not an engineer, it's just you have to, you have to laugh at the person's credit. Yeah, uh, I love stupid. where people who have said, yeah, he's only ever written one program. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, oh, have you been to GRC lately? People, people often uh, say things without any knowledge. Yeah. You hear well, that and the, the other thing too is the anonymity. We don't know who these right. people are. I mean, right. everybody who matters knows who I am and what I've done. But you know, the the net lets people with no pedigree whatsoever, you know comment as you know as if they had some it's like oh okay i mean i just i do what you do leo yeah. i just ignore it gotta, it's like oh, okay fine. brush it off what are you gonna do yep what are you gonna do um somebody's pointing out in the chat room that jeopardy uses a light pen and has since 1984 huh. that's how the and contestants s- sign the you know write their answer, final ah, jeopardy answer. and sportscasters or weren't yeah. they doing things now the with telestrator like, is, a, is essentially a light pen yeah right uh, although now i'm sure it's touch it's i would not think light. so yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, before we get to our subject, what is our subject, by the way? Our subject is, uh, it's uh, you wouldn't know from the title, normally you do, the, the title is Same Origin Troubles. Hmm. Um, there's been a, uh, I would say it qualifies as a kerfuffle in the security community, which was launched about the middle of November, so about two weeks ago, by a security outfit who claimed that they had discovered some flaws in Shockwave Flash, which made all websites 
that weren't specifically designed to protect against it vulnerable to user uploaded content and and adobe responded and i mean there were articles in the in a number of of uh Major industry newspapers, SC Magazine had a comment. Computer World had a, ma- a comment. Of course, the Register weighed in, um, and and it brought to my attention the fact that we had never explicitly discussed same origin because it's a fundamental security aspect of the internet that. Unfortunately, most sites actually are not good about handling. So because it really is a problem, even though I would argue that that sort of on Adobe's side, that it's not their problem, even though, unfortunately, Shockwave Flash is more permissive in a number of ways than it ought to be, um, I thought that would be a great thing to talk about is, you know, this the idea of... Um, of the danger associated with user uploaded content and how that danger can be mitigated by making sure that when you serve back user uploaded content, you don't do it from the same origin as the content you trust. Because inherently, you should not trust user uploaded content. All right. So wind up your propellers. Yeah, no, this is, this, uh, <laughs> this is very relevant. It, it way is, yeah. yes. Really great to talk about. Before we do that, I would like to, and we will have, of course, as always, our daily, uh, weekly dose of security news, errata, updates, things like that. And I have a nice Thanksgiving story. Aw. Aw. Oh, yeah, I didn't even ask you about how your Thanksgiving was. I'll ask you in a second. I want to mention our, our sponsors, Ford Sync, briefly. You've heard us talk about it before. I just Somebody just sent me an article in the uh, chat room, and I'm just fascinated to read it. Ford is planning to uh, open the Ford Sync platform to third-party app developers. Uh, which I think is great. They're going to have an SDK. Let me tell you what Sync is before I... Because uh, that, that I know that we got a lot of propeller heads who listen to this show. So let me talk a little bit about what Sync is before I uh, delve into what they're planning to do with it, which is, the, I think, fascinating. It is uh, basically, it's hands-free calling using Bluetooth. You can bond with... Now, somebody told me it's more than 25 phones. But, uh, how many phones do you need? It's <laughs> as many phones as you could have. Uh, it has music search, which is very cool. Because it has a USB port, you can connect any USB device, even a, a thumb drive or a USB drive. It will index all the MP3s on there. And then you can say, play by name. You press a button and say, play the Beatles. And it plays. You could say, play Security Now to 25. And it plays. Uh, you can also get GPS directions. Ford Sync includes a GPS. You can get, uh, in fact, it even knows traffic information, weather information. It can reroute you if traffic is bad on your route. It will tell you what the weather is, what the sports scores are. It's amazing already. And I'm just thrilled to hear what they're planning on doing. Um, Prasad uh, Venkatesh, who leads vehicle design and infotainment at Ford, he's the guy in charge of Ford Sync, uh, says that they are, they are looking into open sourcing it. Um, they want to, uh, they're d- developing an open source OS for the Sync system, which is based on Microsoft's robotics suite. And then they're seeding it right now to by partnering with universities like the University of Michigan. They're uh, they're they're sponsoring a competition for student app developers. Students will be encouraged to build cloud connected apps in almost any computer language they want: Java, C, or C plus plus. I don't know if PDP eight is in there. I'm sorry, <laughs> probably not. Uh, Ford hasn't decided what language it's going to use ultimately, so so they're being open about this. And then pre- as as a prize, students get to present their app at the uh, Maker Fair. 
So I, you know, Ford. Re- I, I really kind of want people to sit up and take notes. This is not just, you know, another Bluetooth system. This is a computer in your car that already has amazing voice recognition capabilities and is getting better all the time. Safety features, too. I mean, really, it's all a safety feature because it keeps your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. You're not looking down and paging through your iPod. But it also would call 911 if your airbags get deployed and on and on and on. I want you to take a look at Ford Sync. You can actually win a Nano or Zoom now through December 8th. I'm sorry, December 9th. If you go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com, you'll find out more. You can find out more about Sync as well. SyncMyRidePodcast.com. Uh, or tweet, say, hey, I'm listening to Security Now right now, and put the hashtag pound SyncMyRidePodcast. You're automatically entered to win. Ford Sync, available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. Find out more at SyncMyRidePodcast.com. So will we start, to, you want to start with Arata security news? Where do you want to start here? Yeah, we got a bunch of security news. Um, nothing, well, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something, a little yeah. bit, a little bit. <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure that everyone using Safari had updated themselves. Uh, Apple recently fixed multiple critical vulnerabilities, which affect both Mac OS X and Windows. Um, there were multiple vulnerabilities um, in Safari's handling of just pretty much everything. <laughs> A variety of web page scripting constructions and malicious images. Um, there was an integer overflow error caused by improper handling of images containing an embedded color profile. It's interesting. Color profile seemed to be a problem for Apple. They, they've We've had a lot of like mentions of hmm. color profile problems in the past. I don't know what's going on. Someone ought to really look at that code closely and say, okay, let's just fix these things once yeah. and for all. Yeah. Or who knows? Maybe they keep tweaking with it and messing it up as you know our old code, new code uh, uh, dilemma. Um, Safari can be made to crash while parsing specially crafted XML content. And, of course, the concern was that a crash could be evolved into an attack, which is generally the way those things go. Uh, there was an error in Safari's handling of navigation, which could cause a specially crafted HTML file to load a local file and lead to information disclosure, which is not good, uh, depending on what local file you load. Um, there's... Um, they, they, they discovered that the way cross-origin, which is actually the topic of our, our content today, uh, our podcast, the way cross-origin resource sharing was implemented in WebKit uh, could result in cross-site request forgeries, which we've discussed in, in a separate podcast before. So that got fixed. And the way WebKit handles FTP directory listings could lead to arbitrary code execution, information disclosure, or at least application termination. So that all got wrapped. That all got wrapped up and fixed in the latest version of Safari. Now, I wrote four point zero point zero, but I think I meant four point zero point four. Let me check and see what I, you know, because I'm sure I'm up to date. Yeah, uh, I am running four point zero point four. Ah, good. Then my memory was correct and what I wrote was yeah, wrong. So, yeah, yeah. good. So, yeah, so everyone wants to be at 4.0.4. Um, <laughs> not surprisingly, Internet Explorer, another one of our favorite troubled browsers, has a pretty bad zero-day remote code execution vulnerability. Um, the bulk of the market share 
of IE is still at versions 6 and 7. Even though 8's been out for a while, um, 6 and 7 are the ones that are vulnerable. Interestingly, in Microsoft's extensive note, they've, they, they've acknowledged the problem. They know they've got it. Hopefully, we'll get this fixed in December uh, on December 8th, which is next which will be the second Tuesday of December um, and will be the, the patch Tuesday for December. I'm hoping this gives them time to fix it. Um, in their extensive write-up, they said, well, but IE5 uh, isn't vulnerable. It's like, five? <laughs> five? I know. And in fact, they even had to say that 6 running on Windows 98 was vulnerable. Oh, dear. Course, that won't get fixed anytime soon. But... Um, it turns out that there's a problem with uh, the way CSS-style objects are invoked, which surprised Microsoft. Exploit details and proof of concept of this exploit are on the net, so that makes it a zero-day exploit. And the we often talked about the Metasploit framework, which is this framework that, that allows hacks to be created and deployed very quickly. Uh, yeah, the Metasploit, Metasploit Framework Exploit Module 37085.rb will demonstrate this and allow people to do bad things to IE 6 and 7. And I think I remember reading that 6 and 7 still have like 80 plus percent of the IE market. So lots of people have not moved to 8. I mean, I'm I was reluctant to do so. I waited a while, and and pretty much now, when I when I'm on a, one of my machines, it's still on seven. It's like ah, okay, yeah, fine. That's you know, I'll go to eight now. I'm sort of getting used to it and the way it looks and so forth. And it's arguably arguably more secure. Certainly in this case, it is. So if anybody right now is still on seven, this might be a little good reason to kick yourself up to eight, which has become I think stable enough to use. Um, in a in a little twist on. Microsoft's second Tuesday of the month updates. Remember that last update was November's and that it was a massive update. Uh, uh, a huge Biggest number... of history, right? Yes. A huge number of things fixed and it turns out... Broken. No. Some, yes. <laughs> there is now the black screen of death. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen a lot about this. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, apparently, Microsoft tweaked in this massive update, some ACLs, those are access control lists, which, which, which govern what processes are able to read and write files and even registry keys in the registry. And Microsoft has acknowledged the problem. They're trying to track it down. Um, they're, it's they're Windows saying, 7 only, right? Uh, um, good question. Um, it might very well be, although That's my, that was my sense, but I, I haven't done a lot. I haven't. Yeah, it might very well be Windows Seven only. And, and by and, the way, I don't think that widespread. No, and that and that's what Microsoft is saying. It's like, okay, yeah. we're looking into it, but it's not. I mean, you know, I've updated everything. Although I'm not, I'm not on Windows Seven yet, so I wouldn't. It wouldn't have hit me. But yes, if if this had been a huge, you know. 
huge problem. First of all, it would not have gotten through Microsoft's own pre-release testing. And, you know, the world as we know it would have come to an end if right. everybody with, you know, running Windows 7 had this happen. But certainly, apparently, maybe it relates to one particular graphics driver. I think I remember seeing it's like uh, some ATI Radeon something or other right. where you could say, okay, well, I could see how they that guy could slip through Microsoft's testing. But it's never good when... The security updates that we're being increasingly forced to <laughs> to install just out of our own instincts for self-preservation, when they go bad, that's not good. So uh, It just underscores the difficulty, though, that Microsoft faces with this huge variety of hardware that they run on. Yes, Testing is a nightmare. It's phenomenally yeah, difficult, yeah. yes. Um, and... In a weird story that I just sort of picked now, up on, I, I, just just briefly, I, I'm, the, yeah. slash, the chat room is saying that the, on Slash Dot now, um, this the story is being retracted. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, okay, so Microsoft the, said they were investigating reports, and this might be the, this might be the Microsoft's uh, result. Um, I, this was a NeoWin report, and. Uh, Microsoft said they hadn't seen broad issues. Okay, Previx, the guy who found it, has issued an apology. Ah. They blame malware for making changes to the registry, which causes this behavior. So they had malware on their system, making an even odd, more oddball environment. Interesting. So, okay, yeah. so there was something bad there to start with, and then Microsoft security updates come along, right. changes some ACLs, and piss off the malware, and so now, you know, other things don't work. Yeah, thank That's you to uh, uh, A. Villafane and Mike and the others who uh, notified us of that. Yep. That just broke, so. Cool. Um, a pub in the UK, you know, a bar, uh, which is offering... Free Wi-Fi, free open Wi-Fi, was fined $13,000 by the copyright holder of some content that the copyright holder claims was illegally downloaded. And this caused a lot of news in the UK because, I mean, the idea of somebody offering free open Wi-Fi being sued as the due due to the conduct of somebody taking advantage of their open Wi-Fi service, I mean that's something that you know obviously would be huge if this were setting a precedent for the way we're the world's going to be moving forward. Now, there's pending legislation in the UK which they call the Digital Economy Bill, which would provide protection. Because the business would be classified as a public communications service provider, which would make it exempt from litigation. That is, it would essentially they would be considered a common carrier and not responsible for the actions of people using their service. And then some legal opinion was obtained, which which and the legal opinion came down that said that Wi-Fi hotspots in public and enterprise environments. Um, that provide access to the internet to members of the public, free or paid, are public communication services, which then would exempt them. But at the moment, there's not this legislation in place. And as far as I can tell, this fine is still is still in place. And I would imagine the the pub is not has asked to remain anonymous and isn't isn't discussing 
um, you know, isn't talking about the specifics, but it caught my attention because this does sort of, you know, I mean, we're all massive users of of Wi-Fi hotspots as we travel around with our laptops, hopefully keeping cognizant of security. But um, if if this was setting a precedent, obviously, such that you know people were using the hotspots to download illegal content and the the hotspot providers were then coming under legal attack as a consequence of the actions of the people that they were offering the service to well that potentially really throws a monkey wrench in this whole notion of you know go to starbucks and get free wi-fi or or wherever so it'll be interesting to see how this gets handled um and and then it does create though another problem of course if if it's clearly made made um policy that there's a complete hold harmless and somebody offering such delivery system like open wi-fi isn't liable then where is the liability i mean then you would go to an open Wi-Fi hotspot specifically to do your illegal things. Well, but it's similar. It's similar to the safe harbor provided to internet service providers. Uh, I mean, if you're a pub, so you just pub owner, you're, you're passing right. along internet service. You're becoming an internet service provider. And I think that in the U.S., you would be protected. I think it's interesting the British tried to make a law against it. Uh, I, I don't know if that would hold up here. That's very interesting. It's a terrible pre- precedent. Yeah, and again, it looks like this digital economy bill, which is is slated to pass, will fix the problem in the UK, yeah. which will be a good thing because yeah. Yeah. you know, and I hope these I hope these people don't pay their thirteen thousand fine until that happens, or they, you know, get some good counsel. And the last little bit of news on the reminding people not to click on links in email, especially if they appear to be IRS refund letter. <laughs> notices you've got money <laughs> <laughs> which i guess is attracting a lot of people there's uh these the so-called zeus zbot trojan is now spreading very successfully unfortunately oh, by so-called drive-by downloads email spam pretending to be an irs refund letter um is downloading the trojan if recipients click on the link in the email without any additional user interaction. So they're leveraging some known vulnerabilities in whatever platform, presumably Outlook and I, you know, that uses the IE viewer in order to download these things. So I, I you know, it's always worth reminding people, uh, no matter how good you've been in the past, you must still be good in the future because these things are these problems are not going away and you um the irs actually this is enough of a problem that the irs has issued a formal statement on their own site saying we don't send email like that so don't blame us don't click on the links just delete these things yeah wow um i just wanted to mention in the uh windows versus mac uh, never ending war debate, yeah war yeah. that i've been using a macbook pro for about the last month for many hours in the morning because i've been doing a bunch of pdp8 programming 
Um, really? I've, On a MacBook Pro? Well, because, yes, because that's where this really nice PDP-8 emulator is uh, available. Uh, not on and Windows. So, and uh, there are some, but not nearly as nice. Interesting. Huh. And, uh, and so, as a consequence of this strange sort of drag me along kicking and screaming out of Windows over to the Mac, I've been using the Mac a lot, for the, really for the first time in my life. And I just wanted to acknowledge that it's pleasant. I mean, it, there are things about it. What did it you think? I, it was like, oh my God, it's going to be a nightmare. No, it, well, I just thought it was kind of different and kind of romper roomy. It's not that different. That's, well, that's really the real message, I think, in this war is they're getting more alike all the time. Yeah, except there are, you know, there are, for example, the fact that you can't grab any window edge that you you can only right. resize from the lower right corner okay right. that's like okay why right um but i i like the the i like the way they're quote they're what user preferences is sort of like the equivalent of the windows control panel i just like the way that's integrated the, the fact that the apps have like they, they, you know, they all share the menu bar at the top rather than each app having its own menu bar which you is like big, that because that's a big complaint people have um, it, it's as a Windows user, it's a little unnerving because I'm not used to that changing. Once right. you get used to the idea that the window with focus changes that, then it's like, oh, okay, I I get it. Um, I don't quite understand. I've always been wanting to ask you, Leo. When I close something, it you know, like I'll close Firefox. Well, the, so the Firefox logo over in the whatever that thing is you call, like, mm -hmm. you know, a tri oh, the dock. Dock, yeah. It's got a white dot next it's to it. It's still open. Which, yeah, which makes me feel like, okay, it's not really gone. See, this uh, bothers me about Windows. Windows does something to me that seems a little odd, which is you don't explicitly close an app. It closes itself after the last window is closed. And on the Macintosh, there's a quick command for every... And by the way, one of the things that's great about the Macintosh is the uniformity of menus. There's really a kind of a standard for how menus have uh, work. And you can always say that on the menu, you know, the, there's the application's name. At the very bottom of that menu will always be a quit uh, command. And it's always com control or rather command Q. So yeah, that's so how you have to quit it. Closing the last window does not quit an application as it does in Windows. And that's confusing for Windows users, I understand. And, okay, so when I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm confused. Um, but so, it makes sense to me because the, uh, the window is just, a, is not the application. The window is just a display window. So, okay, so if other, if I were to open other applications that needed the RAM, is, is the one that... No, it's still running. No kidding. Okay, well, I mean, <laughs> it always seemed odd to me that you could, you, that I never felt like the application was closed out in Windows because I closed the last window and, and now it is, I guess it's closed out. But I, but I never explicitly said I'm done with this application. The Mac makes you say explicitly, no, I'm done with the application. Just because I closed the last window doesn't mean I'm, I'm not done with well, it. Well, now in Windows, unless you're talking about. There is an explicit. Close command, I understand, which is unaccountably Alt F4. Oh, Alt F4, I'm there, I'm there, baby. <laughs> I think Command Q is a little more mnemonic, but okay, Alt F4. But and you probably use Alt F4, but Windows also will close an application when you close its last window, and that's the uh, behavior the Mac is not doing. Okay, but the way you're saying that, um, applications 
are windows in windows that is no no no. you can have an application you can have a tsr style application that's running without a window you you will you 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 can have things do that all the time there is indexing going on in the background there's always something going well, on. Well, services, for example, are applications that don't have windows. Right. And you, you can have an application present multiple top-level windows, but normally a top-level window is an instance of an application. So, for example, if I launch Internet Explorer right. and I look in the task manager and I, I see iExplorer.exe, if I, launch an, if I start another copy of Internet Explorer, I get another instance of iExplorer XE. That is, it's actually multiple copies of the application are running. So when I'm closing windows, I'm closing applications on a one-for-one basis in windows. Instead of thinking of in terms of like closing the last window closing the application i'm at, each one is actually an application is an instance yeah it is an instance of an application not yeah. that way on the mac i get that now <laughs> <laughs> an application has is is instantiated when you run it and and remains instantiated until you explicitly close it the window is a view into the application but is right. not required for an application to be instantiated interesting now i, I didn't it. realize to be honest i did not realize that windows Right was so closely tied. The instantiation instantiation was so closely tied to a view. Right. I think so. You, all the views on Windows are the the applications always have a view. Yes, you can make an application make have screen. multiple mul- multiple windows. Right. But normally, the top level window is an application, and if you have multiples of those open, you've it's got actually flex. multiple copies of applications. Now, all of this gets a little moot with threading. Um. Uh, and, you know, that was the thing that Chrome did that was interesting was that each tab was an instantiation of the application. So they could die separately. Right. Right. Um, or, or hang and, and get killed and so forth. Now, remember, you know, you're a sophisticated user. And so an operating system is designed not for you. You understand what's going on under the hood. To the person who doesn't know what's going on under the hood... Uh, all they know is... They don't even ask these questions. Well, they do because you go, well, I... Because it's a, that's that is one that's a one very subtle problem that switchers have. Um, the the more obvious problems is the buttons, the, the the windows zooming, you know, growing a window and moving a window, and but but that's a subtle one that kind of bugs people. I think is that well, wait a minute, I didn't exp- I didn't on Windows, I didn't close that application. I just closed a window, and now the application's gone. <laughs> and I don't feel like I'm, I'm like, are you sure it's gone? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Well, there's no sign and, that it's there or not. And I and I knew that it was around still because it would come Is back if I right. clicked on the icon. Bing! It's right. like oh. Right. But I was thinking maybe it was like Apple was being clever and like leaving it in RAM, but but preferen- preferentially if like other stuff came along and needed its memory since I'd closed it technically. It was like, you know, just sort of being around quickly if I needed it. Well, it I mean, you know, like it per- well, I mean, I, some stuff's probably locked, but most of it's purgeable. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the memory manager is pretty sophisticated in OS X. Now, remember that the heritage of the Macintosh, which just might go back to it pre-OS ten days, the memory management was god-awful. And and you you really had a hard time reclaiming memory, and there was all sorts of issues. But yeah, I, and they, were, I, they were pretty good. They have a system very comparable to Windows now. And, and when I think about it, you know, when like uh, on the Finder icon, if, if you right click on it, you say, you know, open another right. Finder window. Right. Now, internet. Now, the Explorer, the Windows Explorer, 
is that way. That is, you know, there's one copy of Explorer running, and then you could have like multiple views of your file system and your computer and so forth. But that's sort of an exception. Most of the other things in Windows, the the so-called the top-level window, like the browser window, multiple tabs will live within that one application. But as you launch multiple apps, that, or maybe multiple instances, those are actually separate applications, uh, you know, separate application right. instances that, that start up and run. So To me, yeah, the it, Mac ways, I mean, I don't want to belabor this, makes more sense because it just reminds you that there are applications running without Windows. I have many applications running that don't have a, a – for instance, here's a little friend feed notifier that's running in the background. It pops up a window when there's something new on friend feed, but it doesn't have a window when there's – you know, it pops up a window and lets it go. I mean, Windows has many applications like that as well. Sure. So I just think it's I, – I like to explicitly close an application because then I know it's closed. But that, you know, it's – that's – this is minor. And, re, and my, well, my real point and the thing I tell people who want to engage in a war is this is like, you know, human and chimp DNA. There's 99.99% similarity between Macs and Windows. Yeah, I, I, I like the power. Maybe it's just the comfort. Maybe it's the familiarity. To me, it, it, Windows feels – like more of a power user's experience. But I have to say, if, if, and I'm noticing as I'm looking around, I'm seeing more and more Macs. Yeah. I mean, like Macs really seem to be coming on strong. And I mean, and why wouldn't they? I mean, if you want to surf the web and do email and, and actually get work done and not be all obsessive about the OS itself, but just, you know, use a computer as a, you know, um, as, as, as a means of getting your work done rather than the, you know, it being the end itself, then I could easily recommend a Mac. It's great for programmers because it comes with a very powerful programming environment. In fact, yes, mine just updated Xcode. There yeah. was a major... Xcode is amazing, yeah. Yep. And then you get Ruby, you get Python, uh, you get Perl all built in. You know, it comes with that. So for I think it's a lot of geeks who want a terminal window. You know, they want the Bash Unix Bash well, shell. The, the idea that it's got actual real Unix underneath yes, it exactly yeah. is is a compelling feature for many people. But to each his own. It's it, they're all they're all running on Intel chips. It's all you know. It's all more similar than different. Yep. If you ask me. Yeah. And and but it's very pretty. I like it. Yeah. So well, I just I just what I want to say. I I had I'd been using it for quite a while. It took a while to get used to it, to kind of customize it a little bit here and there. I, I fixed the caps lock so it's a control and, and overrode that because, you know, why oh, is yeah. there a caps lock? Well, that's so but, but by the way, it's easy to do in Windows. I, it, you have to install it. I mean, in a Mac, you have to install yes. a program on Windows to do that. Yes. Oh, I hate that caps lock key. Hate it! <laughs> um, I had an interesting little quick, fun Thanksgiving story that I wanted to share. Literally on Thursday of Thanksgiving, um, an email was written by someone named Mark uh, Schoonover, S-C-H-O-O-N-O-V-E-R, Schoonover. He said, Happy Thanksgiving. As luck would have it, I'm out, of, I'm out with the in-laws, and they asked me if this clicking they are hearing with their drive is uh, anything to worry about. Uh. Well, it is. I can't read everything from the drive. I do own a copy of Spinrite, but it's at home, 365 miles away. 
I was hoping there was a way for me to download a copy, but I don't know my transaction ID slash serial number to my licensed copy of Spinrite. Is it possible to look that information up? Here is my billing information. And then he gave his name and his street address and so forth. And he says, I know it's a holiday, but hopefully you're available. And then I, I noticed that it is in this little dialogue, it said, sent from my mobile device. So Sue, uh, who runs GRC's operations side, you know, taxes, bookkeeping, and so forth, happened to check in on Thursday since uh, she, like the rest of us, op- you know, operate from home. So it's easy for her to. She wrote back and said, hi, Mark. Um, how about an email address? Uh that you may have had when purchasing. Nothing is coming up under the address you wrote from. And he, he wrote back, well, it's possible I used, and then he gave a different address. That email address um, was before I used this personal email address. Thanks for the quick response. And then Sue wrote back, Mark, your original receipt with download instructions has just been sent via email. For your information, your transaction code in your email receipt is basically the keys to your account. It will allow you to obtain replacement copies as well as edit your contact email should it need ever be changed. Sincerely, GRC Sales Department. And then his final reply was, thanks again for handling this during a major holiday. Gotta love a company with great customer support. The great news is Spinrite saved the day. (laughs) It managed to repair the problem in a single level two pass. I was able to get the system to restart, get the data off, then remove the drive from service. I'm now in good graces with my mother-in-law. Have a great Christmas. (laughs) So, yep, we, we have that system. As long as you know your transaction ID, you can get it from our server anytime, wherever you happen to be. And if you don't, we can typically find it for you and uh, and send it to you. And then you can get it again. So once again, Spinrite saves Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice story. And yeah, I think there are probably more than a few people who went home for the holidays who were called, uh, called to duty. <laughs> you know, How was your, Chris, uh, your Thanksgiving? It was great. I just had a quiet meal with some friends, uh, uh, and it was it was uneventful, which is you know kind of what you want. Just best good kind. food and, and great conversation. That's the best kind, absolutely. Yep. Hey, let's get to our our, our our story of the week. We're going to talk about I don't even know what it means. Even after you described it, we're going to talk about same origin problems. But <laughs> before we do that, let me talk about something I do know a little bit about, and that's of course Go to Meeting for my friends. It's Citrix. Go to Meeting is the best, most affordable way to meet with clients and colleagues. You don't have to travel. According to American Express, the average cost of a business trip today is, would you, what would you guess? $1,000 for uh, one trip. You include airplane and, and food and hotel and taxis and not to mention the stress and strain. 1000 bucks. You're wasting time. You're wasting money, killing profitability when you could just have go-to-meeting meetings. Now, I, I admit, somebody sent me a note saying, well, not all the time. Of course, not all the time. But boy, you can sure eliminate a lot of travel. You could sure be more effective and there are just times when you cannot meet with somebody in person and you have to have that conference call and you don't want to do those. These are the best way to have a conference call because with GoToMeeting, they're seeing your computer on their desktop. So you show them the PowerPoint, you, you work together on documents, you collaborate. Um, it, is a, it is a great, I was trying to convince Jerry Purnell on Twitter that that's how he and Larry Niven should work on their novels. But he said, we don't work like that. I, I plot, he writes. So, it's, so it wouldn't work for them. Although I bet, you know, 
Larry could show him, you know, call up and say, okay, here's the, here the, here's the new chapter. What do you think? And Jerry could type some things. I mean, I could think of a hundred ways to use it. In fact, I have a hundred ways to use it. We use it all the time. Even Ray Maxwell uses it on his Maxwell's house show to show screenshots. Go to meeting. You could try it free right now by going to go to meeting.com slash security. Now before the show's over, you'll have it installed. And then the next time somebody says, you got to fly out to Austin for a meeting, you say, let's save money. Let's save time. Let's use GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of uh, security now. All right, Steve, I am, I've got my propeller hat, my virtual <laughs> propeller hat on. So we've never discussed the, this issue of what's called same origin policy. Hmm. Um, Wikipedia defines it very succinctly. They say the same origin policy is an important security concept for a number of browser-side programming languages such as JavaScript. The policy permits scripts running on pages originating from the same site to access each other's methods and properties with no specific restrictions, but prevents access to most methods and properties across pages on different sites. And, and what that really means is different origins. This notion of an origin, the, or, the origin we're talking about is essentially the, the web domain, you know, Amazon.com, eBay, PayPal, whatever. And the, 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 the issue is the, the safe handling of, of content that's being served by sites. And increasingly, I guess what uh, the term is mashup is like the, the, this notion of yeah. a given site that's now providing content from many different places at once. So this is potentially dangerous if it weren't for strict enforcement of the same origin policy, meaning that, that your browser is... It, it receives a web page from the, the main site that you're visiting. And that web page then requests that other stuff be pulled in to finish out the page from other domains. So the browser goes out and retrieves other stuff from maybe many different domains. Well, you see this all the time. I mean, even, even now, almost every page pulls ads from another domain, right? Right. Is that, is that an right. example of it? Uh, that's a perfect example. Okay. And what's what's critical is that the 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 content, whatever it is, if it's a GIF, if it's a JPEG, or Shockwave Flash ad. Or, I mean, we're seeing Shockwave Flash ads all the time, and they can be very powerful. They can be running. There is, you know, Action Script is the scripting language in Shockwave Flash, and there's a way for Action Script to invoke JavaScript. So, you know how I feel about all this scripting going on, but it's crucial that the that the various components that are that are coming from different origins not be able to touch each other. That is that there be individual isolation. Otherwise, there's there's possibility for something malicious in one of these things sourced from one origin there, there there would be the possibility for it reaching into and modifying content in a different origin so 
So this is generally accepted practice. Well, what this one security firm, Foreground Security, uh, a couple weeks ago uh, made a blog posting where they explained that Shockwave Flash's excess permissivity, um, <laughs> <laughs> almost promiscuity, but not quite, per, the excess permissivity could be abused to to essentially render any user uploaded content dangerous. So SC Magazine, the, the, the security magazine, uh, ran the story, researcher finds frighteningly bad Adobe Flash flaw. The register said Adobe Flash attack vector exploits insecure web design. Um, and then the subtitle was user supplied malware upload peril. And even Computer World said flash flaw puts most sites at risk um, and or, or most sites and users at risk, say re- researchers. And the, the, the Computer World story went on to say hackers can exploit a flaw in Adobe's flash to compromise nearly every website that allows users to upload content, including Google's Gmail then launched silent attacks on visitors to those sites. Adobe did not dispute the researchers' claims, but said that web designers and administrators have a responsibility to craft their applications and sites to prevent such attacks. And the uh, the CTO, the chief tech officer of Foreground Security, was quoted in that story saying, the magnitude of this is huge. Um, Uh, and these guys are based in Orlando, Florida. He said, any site that allows user uploadable content is vulnerable and most are not configured to prevent this. Um, And then he used the example of a company that lets users upload content to a message forum uh, to explain the process. He said, if the user forum lets people upload an image for their avatar, someone could upload a malicious flash file that looks like an avatar image. Anyone who then views that avatar would be vulnerable to attack. And in their rebuttal, and this has been, there's like a, some back and forth going on, Adobe cited Microsoft's 10 immutable laws of security, which Microsoft published back in 2000. Law number four is, is pertains to this, and I love how succinct it is. This is from, from Microsoft saying this, quote, if you allow a bad guy to upload programs to your website. It's not your website anymore. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so, okay, so what all this boils down to is, and, and it raises an important point that is is really crucial, um, which is why I wanted to talk about it this week, and that is most sites which do display any content which was uploaded by users are not being safe and mm. and serving that from a different origin domain that is most applications web form applications um uh online email you know all of these things that we refer to as web 2.0 stuff which makes the the has really you know jazzed up the net and is creating all of this interactivity anytime you are a web server is 
as part of its business is accepting stuff from users. It is truly crucial and really unappreciated that it must then serve that back from an entirely different domain. And most don't. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I mean, and it's critical. So the, most the, don't. The safeguard is in there because the you are the domain is different. Right. It's, a, it's a kind of a namespace issue, right? It's like, it is a name. Yes, yeah. it is exactly a namespace issue. And uh, and what what this researcher was pointing out on one hand is something that Adobe says. Well, we all know that. We've always known that. And, and it's like, but yes, but no one is taking, no one is paying attention to this. And and specifically, where Shockwave Flash is a little flaky, having looked at this, in my opinion, is that is that it is where it's permissive is that you can you can get Shockwave Flash the the, the plugin to parse a file. That doesn't have a .swf, a Shockwave Flash file extension. You can stick it on. You can stick a malicious Shockwave Flash content on the front of an image that ends with JPG or GIF. And the and if you embed this in a web page, Shockwave Flash will run it. Even though it doesn't have the right file extension, Shockwave looks at the at the at the content, the beginning of the content, and it's if if it if it starts off as a valid Shockwave Flash file, it executes it, and so that allows people to bypass upload restrictions. For example, a site might say, "Oh, well, we're only going to allow upload upload uploads of JPEG images." Well. You can upload a Shockwave Flash object ending with a JPEG extension. And if the browser displays it, the Shockwave Flash plugin can be invoked and run script where, where the webmaster never expected script to be run. And so, so Adobe has said that they cannot make Shockwave Flash behave better. That is, I mean, you could argue this is really broken that it is this permissive the other thing that it ignores is the so-called content type header a content type header is it tells the browser what what type of content the object is so for example you'll say content type colon text slash html which which tells the browser this is a text content of html and browsers are smart and if if it's if it does if the file doesn't end in html the browser won't render it because the content it received and the content type don't match similarly you might have a a um a, a zip file would be content type application slash zip or application slash gzip and so forth anyway again shockwave flash ignores that and you could argue, wait a minute. I mean, it really should not ignore that. So, so I would argue that Adobe has some some responsibility in the degree to which Shockwave Flash can be abused. 
they're now saying because they're they've, they've sort of been pushed up against the wall. Well, we can't change it because it would break everything. Can I get a clarification? You, you've been saying shockwave flash. Do you mean shockwave and flash, or what, are you using shockwave flash as a, a longer term for flash? I'm meaning I'm fl- meaning flash. Flash. You're right. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's. I think it's technically shockwave flash, but you mean flash? I mean, I just yes, flash content. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so one of the problems is that 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 flash is, and, and this was the focus of this posting that got everything everybody stirred up, is that flash is is too permissive in in allowing itself. To run flash files, even when they have a different extension and even when they've got the wrong content header. It's that which allows users, bad guys, to upload malicious content, which will will pass the upload filters and then could be served by the server. So, so that's a problem. But... The the bigger problem, that, but but this is a sort of a, a a subset or an exploit of a bigger problem, which is that if all user provided content was were being served from a completely different domain, and that's the way it should be, then even this wouldn't be a problem. So Adobe is saying, wait a minute, this is really not our problem. This is a problem that people have ignored the same origin issue. They are serving user content, user-provided content from the same origin as other stuff. That is, you know, the, the website's content. And inherently, that allows the user-provided content to interact with scripting that's provided by the, the, the site that the user is visiting, and that's really dangerous. So, I mean, I agree with everybody. The real lesson here is, and, and, and I'm hoping that webmasters are hearing this, because the problem is it's not easy to fix. I mean, we're talking about having to, you're talking about having to host all of the stuff that could come from the outside, you know, blog postings, pictures, avatars, content. You know, I mean, there's all all of these sites now are that are allowing users to upload things. I mean, even Gmail. And it's for just example. how the way the web works. I mean, it's you you wouldn't want to turn that off. Well, no, and you can't. I mean, you, you can't. right. You you can't turn it off now. And the problem is getting to safety from here, right? Because because if it had always been done correctly, then we wouldn't have a problem. But it hasn't mostly been done correctly. There are some sites, and you know, I I I saw I scanned past them, and I meant to write them down so I could recite them. But there are sites like professional sites like Hotmail and Yahoo, for example. I don't know that those are two. And I tried to track them down again, and I couldn't find the the, the, the references because in this research, I ran across major sites that are aware of this, mm. and they definitely serve anything coming from anything that ever originated from other than their webmasters come from a completely different domain. So they did it right. The problem is, you know, 
that requires every webmaster who's going to be hosting content with you know any of these state of the art applications to have two domain names right and all of the overhead that goes along with it. I mean, it's a big deal. That's not a simple thing to ask someone to do. It's certainly not simple to ask them to change it now. Well, you know, it's interesting. You, for years, have served your images from one server and your text from another, haven't you? You've um, you kind yes, of done this? For a number of different reasons, I, I've, I've done that. Um, and I do have a number of different is, domains. Is that potentially the same problem? Um, I mean, I know it's your content, so obviously it's not, but right, um, it is mixed content. It, exactly, yes. And, and so, for example, and, and traditionally, for example, I have had images.grc.com and then grc.com. Now, I've folded that back into grc.com slash images. And so th- th- there were reasons I was doing it once upon a time. Literally, I was serving images from a physically different server just for bandwidth reasons. I realized that, wait, you know, this is crazy for me to, to be serving images over my T1s back when back right. when GRC used to be behind to a pair of T1s. And so Mark Thompson, for example, was for a while hosting images.grc.com just so I could use bandwidth that where it made much more sense. So there were there were a number of things I was doing, but but so there I was splitting my content between multiple domains. Um, however, in that case, it was a subdomain, and apparently there are scripting ways to get around subdomain variations, so that that's not enough. You can't just say user supplied content dot mydomain.com versus mydomain.com. You've got to have something like user-supplied mydomain.com that is a fully different top-level domain um, and have the content coming from there. Otherwise, you can get scripts to agree on subdomain um, sharing having a, a being, being treated like the same origin, and that's not safe. And so, you know, this is big news for many web masters who never appreciated the danger. And in fact, the guys that made a big deal about this were reticent to do so because they were able to demonstrate exploits of Flash on many popular sites. And, I mean, they were saying, well, what do we do? We, we really want to force Adobe to fix this, and their focus really was on Flash. Adobe has said, we're not fixing nothing because we can't change Adobe. We, we can't change Flash or it'll to make it more restrictive because its permissivity is one of the, you know, is, is, is a, that is to say it's lax security operation, which is really what it is. It, it should have been much more standards-based, in which case... Webmasters would have had to make sure that that um, content headers were correct, and many of these avenues for exploit of this same origin problem um, would have been cut off. But those are wide open right now. So, so I mean, by my talking about it and shining additional light on it, I mean, again, this is a problem which is potentially big, yeah. but. It's, you know, we know the problems don't go away if you ignore them and if you if you hide them. And, you know, maybe somehow Adobe could come up with a compromise where where they 
they they do a version of Flash which can be asked to be more secure, right. and then webmasters can incrementally who webmasters who care and want to protect themselves could incrementally require that more secure Flash plugin, which would then pr- propagate over time, and they could protect their site using a Flash player that was able to be more restrictive, able to be asked to be more restrictive. I mean, I don't know what the solution is, but this is a problem, and I recognize that it's potentially big. And it's the problem is it's not easy to fix. It's, well, you know, l- l- let me put you on hold. And uh, I mean, you must have some prescriptions or something you'd like to see have happen. <laughs> okay. I hope you do. <laughs> uh, I have some thoughts about it, too. I mean, okay. we're, we're, not, we're clearly not going to ever get rid of this multi, multi-homed webpage problem. But it's, it strikes me that it's really a problem. Well, let, let's talk about it in a second. I want to talk, talk a little bit about audible.com, and then we, we're going to come back and, and finish this up with maybe some ideas for a better way. But before we do, I do want to tell folks about uh, the holiday season. It's here, and uh, a great way to listen to books, whether your your commute is long or... You're working out or you're cooking a uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner is audible.com and a great gift idea, too, for the readers in your life. Audible.com is kind of the world's best, biggest audio bookstore. If you go to audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com right now, you can you can take a look at 65,000 titles. You know what I love about it? It it has kind of the feeling of a bookstore in the sense that you can browse through it as you would a bookstore. For instance, right now they have holiday favorites on sale at audible.com and they have a whole bunch of holiday favorites including a uh, a freebie an excerpt from you better not cry augustin burroughs new book about santa and christmas from a dysfunctional family point of view william bennett's the true saint nicholas the story of the actual saint nicholas not the the, the one that you might have heard about kwanzaa folk tales from gordon lewis christopher moore who's one of my favorite humor writers he does a whole bunch of wonderful vampire tales, has a heartwarming tale of Christmas terror called The Stupidest Angel. So all of this is available for you, and right now it's available, if you want to pick one, for free. If you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, we've got a special deal for you. Sign up for that gold account. Your first book is free, and even if you can cancel it any time, and you can keep that book no matter what. The problem is finding, just picking just one. There's so many great choices. The best readers, too, by the way. These books come to life in the hands of the most talented actors out there. Brand new Stephen, uh, I'm sorry, I said a Stephen Gibson. It's a William Gibson novel, <laughs> not a Stephen G- You haven't started writing novels to my knowledge, right, Steve? No, no. This is Mona Lisa Overdrive is now out in Audible uh, Audio for the first time ever. Audible has a Frontiers program in which they record classic sci-fi stories this is uh, one of steve i'm sorry william gibson's best i just as gibson means steve to me i guess i don't know um uh, you can get it right now for free but but you gotta go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now it'd be a great gift too they do have a gift certificate program uh and they have a tab right at the top free for members so once you join you'll see there's a ton of free stuff that you can download uh, as a member audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Take a listen. I think you're going to love it. All right. Now, I'm not going to call you William Gibson. I'm going to call you Steve Gibson. Um, 
So clearly this is a problem. And as I said at the beginning, it's a namespace problem, isn't it? It's The problem is that web browsers and JavaScript and other web languages um, kind of don't isolate their code very well. Right. The Okay, so so to to put it simply and then we'll talk about solutions the there's a clear problem which is created when a page is composed of objects which could be smart could be scripted coming from different places because traditionally if scripting came from the same place that is different instances of scripting or different parts of scripting they're inherently able to to have visibility into each other they're yeah, able that's, to that's what i was getting at yeah yeah so because of the recognition of the problem the wizards of the web always understanding that this was a potential problem, created this notion of same origin, specifying that only content that was served by the same origin, the same web domain, could interact with each other. Otherwise, stuff coming from somewhere else, from a different domain, would inherently be isolated. So... I mean, that was an understood but dramatically underappreciated issue. And the problem is that there's no enforcement. Nobody makes content from users come from somewhere else. And so the de facto, you know, the default is, oh, well, I have, you know, mydomain.com and I'm going to... And I have an SQL database, and when stuff gets submitted to my site, it goes into my SQL database, which is a back end on my server. And then we want to, we're going to have a forum, and so we're going to want to show people what other people have posted. Right. And so it, it, it's, I mean, it's sort of the natural thing to do. And if it, and the presumption is, and this is the mistake, right? If it comes from me, it's safe. If it comes Correct. from my domain, it's safe, even though I know it doesn't come from me. Correct. And so, so then we, we we say so the webmaster says oh but i don't want people to who might be bad people to submit scripts because then the scripts would go into my database and then when people viewed a page containing scripts that had been submitted by maybe a bad guy those scripts coming from my database through my domain my server would have equal access to everything else on the site and that's really bad right so so the the webmaster who's trying to do the right thing says therefore i'm only going to allow i'm a photo sharing site and i'm only going to allow jpeg uploads or gif uploads the problem is that due to the funky way that Flash works, it doesn't care if its script is named .jpeg or .gif. It runs anyway. And so this, is, this sort of creates a backdoor that allows scripting to run even though it's identified as an image. 
and that's really bad. Yeah. So so that's a problem. But the bigger problem, the more generic problem is that that as Microsoft's law number four of of internet security says, if you allow a bad guy to upload programs to your website, it's not your website anymore. Which is their yeah. way of saying, yeah. you know, you really need containment. You it you really should be sure that that inbound content from users goes to a database which is on a different domain and that i mean it's a pain in the butt to do that because you have to now have you know main domain and other domain and make all the links work and make everything work right. but, and but then, would, that, would that solve it that really does solve it yes because then all of that content comes from a different origin and the browser will then enforce this different origin and 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 enforce containment and then malicious scripting that could have snuck in through some other means won't have access to the main domain's scripting i mean it's, you still have the problem that it's you know scripting that's running on the user's browser but it's 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 toned down at least some. It's a little ironic because even Google, uh, you know, doesn't do this, uh, and certainly they would have the technology to. Is it difficult to do? I mean, yeah. Well, it's it's not difficult if you did it from day one. If, yeah. if retroactively, if every, it's hard to do. Oh, yeah. retroactively, it would just be a huge nightmare. Yeah. I mean, all the links in all your pages that referred to content and i mean uh, yes everything would have to get changed around and then you have other sort of little side effects like like um browsers might be saying wait a minute um we don't want cookies i mean suddenly now those that that provided content is a third party so now you you have cookie access problems because you're not because one of the things that you're that you're wanting to restrict is you're wanting to keep bad scripting from having access to to the user's session cookies because we now know that session cookies are used for creating persistent logons and so you definitely want the bad scripts not you want to keep them from having access to that so you want them to be in a separate domain so that's an example of of what maliciously can be done if you're in the same origin, if you're in the same origin, you've got access to the user's cookies. And, and all kinds of mischief can be made that way. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it would be nice if, in the case of Flash, it were much less permissive. Right. I can understand them saying, we can't change it now. Unfortunately, you know, it's too late. It would break too many things. Maybe some pressure can be brought on them to allow this to get fixed incrementally for for webmasters who are willing to to tweak their sites as necessary to run Flash in a in a more tighter, less permissive way. But the, the, the thing I mostly wanted to shine a light on is this whole notion of same origin, because we've never talked about it. Which I mean, which also sort of demonstrates how obscure it is. The fact that we've gone to episode yeah. two hundred twenty-five. And this is a big deal that 
you know, hasn't really come on the radar until now. Well, it came up because of Flash, but it's more than just Flash. It's been a problem in JavaScript. In fact, I'm sure John Graham Cumming refers to this, you know, this namespace issue. JavaScript can, you know, uh, be confused. I think we even talked about it. By, yes. uh, by uh, or tricked by uh, using common variable names. Yes, it is. It is one of the things, and and that, that this is where we were talking about it was right. was with with John a few weeks ago, and and that is the way Adobe defended themselves. Um, it's not just us. <laughs> You're all screwed up. <laughs> well, well, and, and saying that this is a well known problem, and websites shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And in fact, Howard Schultz, who's an editor for Sans in in the Sans newsletter, they talked about this. And and Howard was the chief security guy at eBay for many years. Um, uh, he was quoted in an editorial that Sands ran saying, who is this Brad Arkin? Brad Arkin was the spokesman at Adobe. He said, who is this Brad Arkin kidding? Saying that, quote, sites should not allow user uploads to a trusted domain is completely unrealistic. And so, so that's Adobe saying, yeah, sites shouldn't do that. It's like, well, okay, but they all do. And so basically Adobe is saying even, it's not even, our fault. Even YouTube does it. I mean, everybody does it. Yep. So you're saying if YouTube had a separate server that was, you know, uh, flashyoutube.com and all the flash came from there and all the other content came from youtube.com, that would, would it, it wouldn't solve the problem, but it would, it would, mitigate it a little bit it's not even clear that using a subdomain solves no it. no it yeah would it would have to be completely like flash flash YouTube. flash tube flash tube. right yeah yeah would would be where the actual the actual flash objects lived within the youtube domain right. so people would go to youtube but the things they looked at would be coming from flashtube.com and there the completely different domain name would in the browser would keep them from ever having any interaction and today we don't really have that i mean it's all possible the really high-end professional sites understand this and they do it but um most sites don't yeah and i i'll bet you we'll be doing a podcast here before long talking about you know some <laughs> some bad consequence of this right uh is and is there anything that the end user can do i mean um can you can you are there are there any settings you can set in your browser that make it I guess not because it can't tell it all comes from the same place there ha, there were among all of this skirmish people saying well um the browser should could, solve it you could turn off flash it's oh, like oh well, well that's thanks true. a lot <laughs> yeah i mean you know talk about dead websites yeah. and there's a in fact there were um there's a toggle flash uh, add-on for IE and no script offers flash suppression or like uh, flash on demand where it just shows you sort of an F and then you click on it if you want to run it. So that's something I've seen no script doing. Yep. But again, we've become so dependent upon flash for, for so much. And again, it, it's, it happens to be one, ex, one too readily exploitable vector of this problem but it's not really the problem the real problem is that that you know as as brad arkin at adobe uh unrealistically suggests sites should not allow user uploads to a trusted domain was like well okay good luck with that the sites are going to 
You know, somebody's pointing out in the chat room, and I just been playing with YouTube a little bit. Uh, YouTube does do some of that. They have a, a, a server called YTIMG.com, uh-huh. where, where thumbnails come from anyway. Um, I don't know if the Flash comes from there or not. That's uh, very clever. So maybe they are doing something like that. It's really, I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if sites that are really on their game have, I mean, where there's a lot at stake, they've said, okay, well, you know, we, yeah. you know, their webmasters really understand. And here's the problem is that, you know, so many sites these days are canned. You buy some blogging app right. or some foreign app and you just stick it in. And you know you run it on yourdomain.com, and there's no there's no concept of this whole same origin policy issue. It's just isn't there. Right. Um, someday this problem will get solved, like so many other ones we talk about. And blocking Flash alone, although I do that. Uh, there's a Flash block script, and uh, uh, there's there's a Safari plugin which I use called Click to Flash. Uh, so I do that, but I do it more because I don't want Flash animations to start playing while we're doing the show when i go to a site but yeah it, but but there are ways to do that but that's not enough because it's just that's just flash and now that there's the same problem occurs with javascript and other well and i flash. i use a very nice add-on for firefox uh ad block plus right and that's very oh expensive. my goodness yeah. it's so nice uh, you just don't have you know fish jumping around your page when you when you go somewhere or or you know People, you know, just really annoying things flashing at you and trying to get your attention. It just, it just quiets all that down. So that also would, would protect you in a nice way. Right. Steve, uh, I'm glad we did talk about this. It's funny that, you know, this has been around forever, but uh, yeah. we, this is the first time we've talked about same origin problems. Um, Steve Gibson is at grc.com. Now, that's his website. You can go there to find this podcast, of course, both 16 and 64 kilobit versions. Uh, depending on your bandwidth capabilities, there's also a uh, transcription, so you can read along as you listen. And show notes, too. It's all at grc.com. If you, we have a feedback episode next week, so if you want to leave a question about this or any other security topic, go to grc.com slash feedback. And while you're there, just you know, pick up a copy of SpinRight. You never know when you'll need some hard drive recovery or maintenance. grc.com. Steve, I can't wait to talk to you next week. Thanks, Leo. We'll do it in seven days. Security now.